a more ambitious teaching this morning that is probably longer and more demanding. Um, but I want to try and bring together two elements. <coughs> One is the whole process whereby Israel, the transformation Israel Church, which therefore the relationship between the Old Testament and the New, between the Old Covenant or Covenants and the New Covenant. And it's a process, it's a crisis, it's a transformation. And um, I want to try and bring that together with a focus on the person of Jesus, because it's Jesus at the center of this transformation. And, um, and here I think it I hope this will help to show us how, how all of our churches and traditions, we've all, in effect, been living off um, a, a kind of reduced version of, of <coughs> biblical revelation. And, and I hope that, you know, we will start to see more clearly how the, to enter into the fullness of the biblical revelation, which is also the fullness of Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that, that, it, that this cannot happen without us all being brought together. And I hope this will sort of be made clearer through this teaching. Now, for most of Christian history, the relationship between Israel and the church was simple. Israel was the chosen people in the Old Testament, but aren't anymore. And this was not true, but it was what was commonly believed, and it's very simple and clear. And um, so the church is then the new chosen people, the new Israel, who've taken the place, therefore word replacement teaching or supersession, um, Israel, church has taken the place of Israel as the chosen people, as the covenant people. And in this scenario, the promises given to Israel no longer belong to them, but belong to the church instead. Now, of course, in practice, this means that some of the promises are forgotten. And it also means that some of them become so spiritualized, you know, the promised land becomes heaven. Now, um, you know, but of course the promises are also the return to the land. And um, so, you know, these, when transferred in that way, they don't quite fit. Um, so I want to look at how the process whereby the church came into being and its relationship to Israel. And this means, I want to start therefore with Jesus and the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. Jesus comes in human flesh. And it's very important that he, um, he's not just a, a generic human being. He is a very specific human being um, belonging to a particular people, a particular place with particular ancestors. 
and the Gospels make this clear from the beginning. And this is absolutely foundational because this is what anchors our salvation in, in the real. You know, once you... See, often people, and I'm accustomed to hearing a lot of presentations of incarnation where the, the teaching is all about Jesus became, a, became man. He be, the word became flesh. He became a real man, and there's no reference to his ancestry, no reference to his being Jewish, and so it's as though Jesus just became a generic man. Mm-hmm. And the, this easily produces a sort of an abstract um, Christology, an abstract sort of a lot of theology that's disconnected from reality. And there's something very important about the identity of Jesus. And so this is is there right from the very beginning of the New Testament. You see, so Matthew's Gospel begins, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And both of those points are key. See, son of Abraham, he belongs to the chosen people. He's son of David. He's, he is the Messiah, the one who will sit on the throne of David, his father. And and then you see in the message of the angel to Mary in Luke chapter 1, we're told he will, Mary's told he will be great, her son, and will be called son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, which is the house of Israel. His kingdom will never end. And um, so here we have this identity of Jesus very clear at the beginning. And and we find also... um, that um, with the Song of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 the Song of Simeon you know the in the song I'm accustomed to call the Nunc Dimittis the Lord Sovereign Lord as he promised you now dismiss your servant in peace now See, and Jesus is described as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And here you find, taken up in the New Testament, the distinction that runs throughout the Old Testament between Israel on the one hand, chosen, and the nations. And Israel's chosen is called to be a priestly people and therefore to be a blessing to the nations. Now, you know, there's all sorts of questions here which I'm not going to go into. But the point here is that um, well, this takes up the songs of Isaiah 42 and 49 are echoed <coughs> in this song of Simeon. And then Simeon gives a prophecy to Mary. This child is destined to call, cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, so Simeon is saying that this child, you know, this Jewish 
child, the boy who's being presented in the temple, that he will cause a division in Israel and his own people. And um, this is also fundamental for understanding what happened and, so to speak, the separation of the church from the synagogue. And um, that now, then I want just to mention you see that here we have already um, this idea that Jesus. Um, he's going to divide his people not of his own will but by their different reactions to him but also that Jesus is already there is an identification of Jesus with his own people and uh, this is made very clear in the story of the baptism of Jesus and I want to talk a little bit about this but First, you have in Matthew chapter 2, you see the, the time of exile in Egypt. It's only mentioned in Matthew. And it has this verse there, which is Matthew 2, um, 15, that they were in Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now why does Matthew mention that? Well, the, the um, Israel is called, you know, God says it's Exodus 4, 22, I think, um, the, that Israel is my firstborn son. And that's mentioned in connection with the call of Moses and is being sent to the people. And so it's Israel's firstborn, it's the firstborn son who is being called to leave Egypt. And so, so out of Egypt I called my son. And so Matthew interprets the, ch the child Jesus being in Egypt and coming back, that he represents Israel, out of Israel, out of Egypt I called my son first um, all those centuries earlier Israel all Israel called out of Egypt and now Jesus and so he embodies in his person in a particular way the whole people and this is there in the baptism and this is very important I think for understanding rightly the relationship between the church in Israel. So, um, you see, Jesus receives the baptism of John. Now, the baptism of John is a baptism of repentance. Um, it says in um, Luke 3, verse 3, John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so, um, also we should notice John's mission is only to Israel. Um, and so it's, we're told the crowds flock out from Jerusalem and all of Judea to hear John. And, um, and he, it says in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 31, it says about John, the reason why I came baptizing in water is that he 
might be revealed to Israel. That's what it says in John 1.31. So, um, Jesus receives this baptism of repentance. Now, the, the incongruity of this, that Jesus, who's without sin, receives the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, John instantly recognizes this. Mm-hmm. And we have this narrative in Matthew 3. He says, um, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now this is one of these mysterious sayings. What does it mean when Jesus says that it is to fulfill all righteousness? Well, this is in fact talking about the whole salvation redemption of Israel. And we find righteousness is a very central theme in, in the Old Testament. This is this is important concept because righteousness is both applied to the individual. You know, Joseph is described as a righteous man, but it also righteousness is essentially something social that is concerned with the the ordering within society and the whole relations of everyone with each other and in the society and the whole people. And so we find that in Isaiah um, 42, um, you know, about the servant, says, I have put my spirit on him. He will establish justice among the nations. This is the same thing as righteousness. And also we find this runs through Isaiah 60 to 62 about Jerusalem. You see... um, but you find this right through here that um, I just happened to notice here a verse in Isaiah 33 he will fill Zion with justice and righteousness it's 33.5 but um, the um, mm-hmm. but in in Isaiah 60 mm-hmm. for example it says um, that Um, the end of verse 17 I will make peace your governor and righteousness your ruler no longer will violence be heard in your land nor ruin or destruction within your borders but you will call your walls salvation your gates praise And, and so in verse 21, Isaiah 60, then all, will all your people be righteous and they will possess the land forever. So this is part of the messianic vision that the Messiah will establish justice uh, first in the land, Jerusalem, and then it, it will and over the whole earth. And um, we, we find this um, idea also... Um, you find this in a number of the Psalms. Now, here Jesus is identifying himself with the people, the whole of Israel, and he's identifying himself with them even in their sin. And this is the meaning of his accepting the baptism of repentance. In other words, he's, he is identifying. Now, 
we get the preparation for this, of course, in the prophets, Jeremiah and Daniel. You find it in Nehemiah, who confessed the sins of their fathers. And like Jeremiah says, we and our fathers have sinned. Now, in fact, when you actually look at the life of Jeremiah and Nehemiah, they didn't seem to sin like their fathers. But they don't exempt themselves. They do not just say they sin. They say we. And um, Jesus identifies himself in this way, but he goes even further mm -hmm. than the, the prophet, who were sinners, but but it does not seem like anything like to the same degree as their ancestors and the, the, the leadership in general. And so here you have Jesus identifying with his people and his baptism represents his acceptance of the consequences of sin, accepting his death his death on the cross, his death as the Lamb of God. And, and it's this that's going to effect righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. And so in his baptism, he is already accepting his call, which is going to lead to his death. <coughs> now it's important to see this identification of Jesus with his people that this is something permanent and it's an identification in love and it's not an intercessory technique and this is important for intercessors because people identify you know I hear people identifying you know going to places and identifying with things that happen well I don't think it's very convincing to identify yourself with something for a sort of couple of days and, and then you forget all about it um, because identification of this sort is not just an intercessory technique that you take on and go through this saying, you know, we and us and everything. Um, and, and then, you know, it doesn't mean anything more. For Jesus, there is a permanent, total identification between him and all his people. Now, of course, he... It's part, as I said, it's the calling of Israel to be a priestly people. So in fact, the identification of Jesus with his people is also for the sake of all nations and all peoples. Mm -hmm. But um, he is only sent during his earthly ministry to Israel. He says, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, 24. Now, I think often we've not taken this sort of thing seriously enough and reflected upon it. You know, there are, there are antecedents, there are signs that of what will happen in the future, but, it's, but he, this, is what he, this is what he's received from his Father. He is sent. And he says, I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when the Apostles, the twelve, when he sends them out, and this is Matthew 10, 5 and 6, he, he gives them instructions along the same lines. So Jesus says to the twelve, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. 
And as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. So, um, you know, and it's clear too that the 12 are chosen have a particular role because um, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus says, you know, on the day of, of uh, renewal of all things, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you know, this is not a text we generally hear much about, at least I've not never heard much about, but it's obviously important in the mind of Jesus, but it was probably very important to the twelve. Now, um, what does it mean? Now, um, what the implications for us today? Well, I don't have much idea, but I think it must have some. Um, But, you know, there's something here, it's all part of what we're recovering as we abandon the false replacement concept and really situate Jesus in his um, own um, life situation and in, in fact the life reality and this is to rediscover Jesus the Jew, the Messiah of Israel and it's only after the resurrection that the mission is extended to the nations. So it's after the resurrection you have the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all <coughs> nations. Um, but I th- so I think there's, there's something decisive that happens here in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, but even then it took the apostles and it took special revelation intervention of the Lord for them actually to go to the nations. Mm. You know, um, now, I think the, I mean, the, there's a lot more in the, the Jewishness of the Gospels and Jesus' teaching and so on that I'm not going to pick up here. <coughs> you see, my central point that I think is so important for understanding the relation rightly, the relationship between Israel and the church is to this identification, total identification of Jesus with his own people who are the priestly people who are to be a blessing to all the nations. Mm-hmm. And this is the framework for understanding the particularity of Israel, the election of Israel, and the salvation of all the nations and all the world. And um, Jesus is, um, you know, so it's all to do with Jesus. So what this is saying is you cannot separate the election of Jesus from the election of Israel also. Um, And um, now I think here the church is formed first um, totally within Israel the beginning of the church is part of Israel they would not have thought of themselves as separate from Israel Um, and in a way the church is a renewed and transformed Israel gathered around him who is the new lawgiver Moses the new David the suffering servant but not 
as replacement, not as rejecting. And so, in this light, the rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel is a split in the heart of Israel. It's the split foretold by Simeon. And so Israel becomes split right down the middle between the part that gathers around Jesus and those who repudiate him. And here, you know, that what's relevant here are all these texts about the cornerstone, the capstone, and so on. And um, like in, in Matthew 21, 42... Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. But you see, the stone is part of the building. It's, it's in this framework of Israel. And so it represents a new foundation in some way, but within Israel. And um, now... Israel had been given the promises and in Romans 9, 4-5 where Paul lists uh, what was given to Israel and he, it's not simply a statement about the past he includes, he includes the covenants, he includes the promises and so the people of Israel are the bearers of the messianic hope and this is very important because I think historically when the church cuts itself off from the roots in Israel, we lose something of the, of the hope and the messianic hope and it gets weakened and it gets distorted. Now, um, but, you know, the, the, the hope is there right from the beginning there are promises. The promises are first given to Abraham. Promises of descendants, promises of land, and there, a covenant initially made with Abraham, these are not promises for a time, they're stated to be everlasting. Now, then of course the promises are expanded through the history of Israel, and particularly through the prophets. And so, and particularly after the foundation of Jerusalem, and so you've got a great expansion in the in the promises, in the messianic expectation. And there is expectation of one coming Messiah and one coming king, kingdom, that is to be this kingdom of righteousness. And, and there is also, that in a number of passages, this more universal dimension, there's, there's the righteousness of Jerusalem and the land, but it's also these references to being established throughout the earth. And in, in this, there is one coming. That's what the Jews expected. Now, it's very interesting that as soon as the disciples recognize Jesus as the Messiah, he starts teaching them about his coming death and resurrection and he starts mentioning his second coming. These are not mentioned until after they've recognized he's the Messiah. 
And it says this explicitly in Matthew um, 16, verse 21. Because, you see, immediately after Peter has confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it says from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So, but also, further on the same chapter, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done and so on. So, you see, that some who had said will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, I'm not going to comment on that in detail, but the point here is immediately they confess that Jesus is the Messiah. He starts both to say what sort of, he's going to be a suffering Messiah, and he's going to die, but and that means he's going to rise from the dead, but it it means that it's not all going to happen immediately. And, um, and so he starts speaking about the second coming. And, um, and of course, you know, th this is a space opened up w and the kingdom is already present in Jesus, but not fully present. And, and when Jesus goes, he says he will send the Spirit. So the, the period of the church between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming is the age of the Spirit. When the Spirit is given, to and that making the work and life of Jesus and his person present, but present not totally visibly in his glory, really present, and this is preparing for the final manifestation, the fullness to come. And so you get this whole space opened up with two comings. And so the thing, what I see is that what happens here is that with this revelation, that after the day of Pentecost, you see immediately a reinterpretation of the heritage, of the promises, in the light of the Jesus event. You get a reinterpretation of all the promises given to Israel in the light of what's happened to Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. And this is very clear in Acts chapter 3. And here, this is very instructive chapter because here, Peter, it says, Peter addresses the crowd. He says, men of Israel. Why is this a surprise? Now, verse 13, see. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. And so here, it's totally in the framework of Israel, the God of our fathers. And 
Um, and he's raised, glorified his servant, which connects with all the promises in Isaiah. See, and the promises in Isaiah, the servant, there's always been interpretation. The servant is both a person and mm-hmm. the whole of Israel. Right. And I think, you know, we're at, we often tend to make dichotomies and that you've got to choose one or the other. You know, the Jews say it's the whole people and the Christians say it's a person. It's both. And you see, we understand this in this context that Jesus identified himself with the whole people. So, um, then in, in Acts 3, Peter goes on. See, and here you see how there's this interpretation right in one of the first messages of of the hope. See, because they believed there'd be one coming in which everything would be accomplished. The the coming of the Messiah, the the establishment of his throne in Jerusalem, uh, his rule over Israel and the earth. And it says, verse 18, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So there has been a fulfillment, but the fulfillment is happening that the prophecies about him suffering. And then he goes on, repent then and turn to God <coughs> so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Second, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So here in this end you get this very clear reinterpretation of the promises to Israel in the light of two comings. You know, some promises have been fulfilled in first coming, some, I would say, partly fulfilled in first coming and fully fulfilled the second, but some only in the second. Now, years ago, I used to preach, and I've heard others preach this that everything's already fulfilled in Jesus. Well, yes and no, and um, <laughs> but um, see, I think this is really significant to look and see how this reinterpretation went on because it was a huge challenge to them. But of course, what is also going on is that there's a transformation because see Jesus Jesus identifying himself with Israel means that see one important thing about the resurrection is it is a transformation in the humanity of Jesus now this is something that there's not been nearly enough teaching about because often the resurrection is reduced to sort of well, it's victory after di- after disappointment, defeat, and it, it proves that Jesus is God, and this kind of argument. But the resurrection is the transformation of Jesus' humanity into what we're all called to be. Mm-hmm. It's the glory, full glorification of His entire human uh, nature, united to. To the to God in the Trinity, and so this is 
Um, this means that this transfer, you know, it means in some way Israel is transformed in Jesus. Jesus identified himself fully with his. So, you know, this is an important dimension. So, um, and it points out the tragedy of, of the Jews as a majority not believing in him. Because from this point, it's like there's two Israels where there should be one. There's the Israel that's embodied in Jesus, and there is the Israel that's rejected Jesus. But, you know, the process of accepting Jesus is transformation, it's entering into the process of his death and resurrection. So, when, um, you know, Paul teaches that when we're baptized, we're baptized into the death of Jesus. Do you not know that when you're baptized, you're baptized into his death, <laughs> Romans 6, and, you know, and therefore we share in his resurrection. And this, you know, this develops into the understanding that we form the body of Christ, the body of Messiah. So we are entering as believers, we're brought into the reality of Jesus, um, which is renewed, transformed Israel. And um, this is part of our identity as, as believers. And I think this is very fundamental. Now, um, you see, so you get this division, therefore, between the Israel which welcomes Jesus, well, first of all, that's represented in Jesus, that's expressed fully in Jesus himself, but then that all his followers and believers are united with him and become part of his body. And... You see, and we should read passages in Ephesians in this light that, you know, the Gentiles become co-heirs, members of the same body, co-sharers in the promise, but also, you know, fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. And, you know, this is all saying the same thing. Now, therefore, this links are expressed in different language in Romans 11, that the Gentiles are like branches of a wild olive that are grafted into the natural olive. Mm -hmm. The natural olive is Israel embodied in Jesus. And so, um, now, then there's unbelieving Israel. And so what happens to them? Are they simply rejected? Now, Paul addresses this directly in Romans 11. And so in... in in Romans 11, he says, in verse 1, did God reject his people? And he says, absolutely not. I am no means. I am an Israelite myself, etc. Et and he then refers to the remnant. Um, you know, sees himself as part of the remnant. So, he's saying, God has not rejected Israel. Um, and then in verse 11, he comes 
to the next question. If God has not rejected Israel, and Paul demonstrates this by the fact there are some who believed in Jesus, including himself, he says, he comes to the next question, well, what about those who did not accept Jesus, have not yet accepted Jesus, are they rejected? So he says, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And he says, no, not at all, again. Actually, I think there's eight questions in Romans mm. that Paul asks where the answer is no, not at all, absolutely not. But rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And um, it says in verse 15, in this translation, a lot of translations have if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, actually, rejection is a bad translation because um, that's the word used in verse 1 to say he hasn't rejected. Um, and in fact, it's a different Greek word that's used here, and it really means being set aside. And so it's like if, if... if they're being set aside, if they're being marginalized, if they're, you know, being, you know, it's, but it's not a permanent rejection. And so here, you know, you have this language of the times of the Gentiles and so on, and um, which you find in Luke 21, 24, and, and then in Romans further, Romans 11, that... Um, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And um, now, in fact, you know, the, 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 the Greek says just pleroma, fullness, it says the fullness of the, of the Gentiles. And so full number is, is actually a sort of attempt at interpretation but the text says until the fullness and it's interesting because in verse 12 he's spoken of the fullness of Israel so in the same chapter he speaks at one point about the fullness of Israel and then he speaks about the fullness of the nations the fullness of the Gentiles but you know I think this is very significant now I believe with this identification of Jesus with his own people that he's identified himself with the whole people. He identified with them, with them in their sin. Mm-hmm. So he's, ident- he's still identified with the Israel that has not yet accepted him. And I think this is extremely important for understanding Jewish history. Um, that they've not been simply... About, he's identified with them. Now, they've been allowed to suffer incredibly and so on, and there's various people who've written about this and possible theological meaning of this, which I'm not going to go into, but I think it's very important. So when we're talking about the relationship of Israel and the church, it's not enough simply to talk about Israel, the church as sort of founded by Jesus, um, and Israel as having as a people rejected Jesus and therefore you've got complete separation, I think we have to see that the church in its 
fundamental reality is Israel renewed and transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus and are being brought into this reality and then you've got the continuing Israel that did not accept this that's still in some sense Israel and still called <coughs> Israel but which is um, awaiting the that, that you know that is not outside God's purposes and that there will be the time when Israel, all Israel is saved he says whatever that means but it certainly it's talking about also corporate Israel the whole leadership um, and I think you see we we live at a very significant time in history um, you know, I would be more cautious about identifying the fulfillment of, of biblical prophecies about Israel than some um, Christians, but I think you cannot deny, it doesn't make sense to deny, that there is a fulfillment going on. And that, you know, the, the return of the Jews to the land has to be significant. Now, the setting up of a Jew Jewish state what is, what, of Israel, what does that mean? Well, I think this is significant also, but it seems to me to be a mistake to sort of treat that as though it's identical to the kingdom established under David and Solomon because the, that, the, the rulers there were established by God. And anointed, the, the elected government of Israel is not <coughs> so chosen by God in that sort of way. And I think it's better to understand the state of Israel as a necessary step to ensure their identity and their gathering. It's like a servant role, but it, it um, but you know, and I think we have to be more tentative about this. But to say that it has no meaning in God's purposes seems to me to be nonsense and to be blindness. Um, and so I think we live in a time where the times of the Gentiles are being completed somehow, whatever this means, and the, and the, and the Jews are beginning to come in. And, um, and this is hugely significant. But, you see, in the process of this, what does it mean for those of us who are not Jews? Well, I think one of the things it means for us all is we have to go back and be constantly taught by the Holy Spirit how, um, you know, from the Scriptures about the Jewishness of Jesus and the sort of process that I've been illustrating and I think, think that I've been going through for some years and which needs to go further um, and where the Spirit is opening up the Scriptures in a new way because you're going back and understanding them in their actual context and getting light from the Lord on this. And um, I think this process has to go a lot further. But this process is profoundly unifying mm -hmm. because a lot of our divisions come from 
having forgotten the Jewishness of Jesus and become more distant from those roots. And that has made possible uh, more and more divisions. And so, um, but I think, you know, it's not an automatic process. It's obviously not true that everyone who, who discovers the, the election, ongoing election of Israel and is enthusiastic about it is brought into an immediate unity with all other believers. I don't, <laughs> this, does, this is not the reality we see happening around us. Um, but I think one of the problems is you know, one of the problems is human arrogance of people thinking they know more and understand more than they do. And I think, so part of this process also requires a great humility. But we, we haven't understood this th that well, and the Spirit's beginning to open it up, but there's a whole process we need to go through. And to sort of start talking confidently as though we understand everything and it's all perfectly clear and there's nothing more to solve is not helpful. And, um, and of course the people who talk like that are not all in agreement with each other. So anyway, these are some thoughts. Um, I managed to get through this rather more quickly than I imagined. I it might take up the whole hour. So um, maybe what do you want to do now? Well, I'd like to... Um just make a few comments about the way that Father Peter's kind of what I've experienced in the two Antioch gatherings that Amy and I went to that, that may help ex explain how I'm understanding this idea of the importance of Israel for unity because this was, this was not on my radar screen at all until I went to Heronhood. But the House of Prayer here has been called to pray towards reconciliation and unity. It's one of the primary prayers that we have in our heart. And so for me, it was quite a stretch to even imagine and come into the you know, Catholic Protestant, wow, you know, that's a whole new ballgame. And, and to actually begin to dare to pray that there might be reconciliation there was, for me, a significant step. Um, the Orthodox is kind of, you know, so I had that understanding of these three main streams of Christianity and somehow that we had this gallant quest to pray for unity but didn't have any idea how it would happen. Um, but that's okay because that's what prayer is. It's a place of weakness. You're asking God to do it. Uh, so when we went to Heronhut and I heard Father Peter speak for the first time, I, I realized, oh, there's a fourth stream that's older than the others. And that's the Jewish church. So that was, for me, a very profound realization. Um, fast forward to Antioch, where we just came from in January. And I'll just say one thing that was said in Antioch. So obviously, one thing we don't talk a lot about, because it's a very controversial subject, but that we think a lot about, and in our family pray a lot about, is the question of com communion and trying to imagine what would it be like and how could it ever be that, that Protestants and Catholics could come and share communion together. And it's something we desire greatly, but once again have no, you know, we pray towards it without having any understanding of how could this happen. Well, one, one statement that was made in Antioch was, what if there was a 
established and recognized Messianic Jewish leader in Jerusalem, who essentially sat in the seat of James, who invited the streams of the church to come and share the Lord's Supper together. Wow. For me, that was rocked my world. So I just Sister wanted to. Sister Anya, yes. I, I don't even know who's. Do you remember who said that? Maybe David? I, I think that that's something that. I, I think George Miley articulated, but I think he, he heard it from Sister Anya. Yeah, Sister Anya is big on the seat of James. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to mention that because I think it adds a little bit of, you know. It's not to say this is how it's going to all unfold, but it adds a little bit for me, a little bit of specificity of, oh, okay. See, one of the things I've experienced is that the Catholic-Protestant interaction and tension and everything um, becomes complete. There's a complete change when you're in the presence of Jewish believers, consciously Jewish believers, because. You see, I think when Catholics and Protestants <coughs> meet, sort of we're, we're, both sides are thinking underneath, well, when it comes to the end of the day, we're, we are right, you see. And <laughs> Catholics are thinking, well, at the end of the day, we are the true church, we're the original church, and, you know, Protestants broke away from it. And, and the Protestants are thinking, you know, we are the truly biblical church, and we understand the scriptures, and they... You know, and they don't really, and so on. And so, the, although you're you're exploring, you're being nicer, you and you may be really um, sharing some important things. That thought is still there, but when when you meet in the presence of Jewish believers, you can't. You know, in a sense, you're encountering something older, and um, and y- you're also encountering something where. Both Catholic and Protestant have to confess, have have sin to confess, mm-hmm. and it, it humbles. And this is essential. I found this time and time again how important it is. Now, since then, I've also had experience of being with Orthodox Christians and Messian- Messianic Jews, because since 2006 we have an annual meeting of Messianic Jews and Orthodox in Romania, and I'm always invited to this, and I suppose have some kind of mediating role, but actually the Orthodox are not very keen on accepting Catholics as sort of <laughs> <laughs> mediators. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the, you know, the pr- our pride gets in the way and so on. But um, what's amazing is, I mean, We've had Orthodox bishops at these meetings, and they um, um, they they can recognise something about the appearance of Jewish believers. That and th- this one of their bishops with us gave what was in fact amazing prophetic word, and he. He in fact picked up on. He he went to John chapter twelve. Eastern Orthodox bishop, Romanian Orthodox bishop. So, you know, um, and he um, 
So in John 12, it's just after the raising of Lazarus. And he, he says, um, this is verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Um, and so he interpreted this. You know, this is rather characteristic of Orthodox for a kind of mystical interpretation. He, he said that um, a large crowd of Jews came um, not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And he related this to the Messianic Jews being like a movement raised from the dead. And, you know, that, um, and, you know, I thought this, this was amazing. And, um, and this, this bishop, he comes each year when he can, and he, he said this last year that he wanted to, he would commit himself to presenting the importance of this restoration of Jewish faith in Jesus to all the bishops of the Romanian church. He wanted to be a voice for this in their synod of bishops. Mm -hmm. And so who knows what will come of that. But this is, is an amazing thing. You see, I think what makes it possible is this recognition somehow, although the Messianic Jews are in one sense the new kid on the block, <laughs> in another way they represent something that's older than the rest of us. And um, and people recognize this, and and it's this that, uh, and particularly I think with the Messianic Jews from Israel, you see what we found is, we one man who comes each year to to these meetings in Romania is Benjamin Berger from Jerusalem. Now Benjamin Berger is a very prayerful um, man and d deep, uh, you know he he's he's not at all the kind of um, senior pastor, CEO, you know, CEO kind of man. Um, he, he, and, um, and in fact, he and his brother, they, they've got a place they go to regularly on the Isle of Patmos, which is owned by the Orthodox Church. And uh, <laughs> they've had relations with the abbot of the monastery there and not entirely positive sometimes but <laughs> um, but they but they you know that they but they are very deeply rooted in the scriptures but understood really as worth well not in the sense of explaining every, everything that there's nothing left to explain but in in a and 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 so, uh, in a way that's very profound and very deep, and the Orthodox, he's ideal for presenting the Messianic voice to, to Orthodox because they can recognize in him something that's very deep, spiritual, and you know, and and they can receive things from him. I, you know, which. Um, <coughs> 
is a huge blessing. But, you know, it, the, the, what I've seen with this is the Lord is opening doors in the most unexpected places. And, um, you know, because we all have our ideas about who we think is open and where something might happen. And this all proves us totally wrong. <laughs> the Lord, the, you know, I've seen time and time again um, people open and things being heard in sort of places that I would never have imagined it. And, um, and so um, the, um, you know, Benjamin also shared in one of the biggest Coptic Orthodox monasteries in Egypt and they were extremely receptive to this. You know, this is in Egypt where, you know, you wouldn't think Egyptians would not all be known for their love for Israel. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, there is. Good. Well, we have about 10 minutes before we're going to start midday prayer. And what I'd like to do is have a few just reactions of how this is striking your heart. Not so much question and answer, mm -hmm. not so much, you know, uh, trying to reteach it. How is this striking your heart? And if, and if I could, there's a couple of people on my heart to call on, uh, but feel free to say no if you don't want to respond. But one is you, Dad. Just have it on my heart to see if you're, any response you have to what Father Peter's saying. No, I'm looking at you, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we had the privilege of hosting Father Peter, and we've uh, deeply enjoyed that. Uh, reading his book. Kindle my hope that somehow this is all going to happen. That the Jews are going to come in and we'll all sit down at the table together and uh, enjoy the Lord together. And it's just like it's written in the book. I've never been able to see that before, mm -hmm. but I've seen it from afar now. So 
just feel like I like how unfamiliar ground can unite you, like when the, you don't know what's going on and it's like there's an earthquake and everything's shape-shifting underneath you and you have to hold on to somebody and if you get everybody from various streams on that ground, I feel like that'll be something where it's like we're going to have to hold on to each other, you know, both in pursuit of and in receiving from the Jews, I think. So that's my thought on that. something I'm learning about what, what I what I when I try to think about the church this the more I you know I, I as a believer I've kind of loved and hated the church but I know I'm called to the church you know you know the universal church but it's frustrating to me because it's so divided and so big I do what I have my hope is I know that Jesus prayer will be answered in John 17 mm -hmm. that you know that he'll make the church one at some point, I the I love. I'm drawn to Jews. I've had travailing prayer for Jews, and I don't understand all of it. There's certain things for me personally that I know that that have are waking up um, concerning Jews. The one strategy I think sometimes, like just that still still seems like just kind of a minor thing, but maybe a major, major thing for missions is that, you know, Paul said, you know, that you go preach to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think in our, I mean, that's just a small mm -hmm. verse, but sometimes on the mission, if I were a missionary person sent somewhere, I would try, I think I would start to find if there were any Jews there first. That always made sense to me. That's always kind of wrong, like, um, I don't know that that's changed. You know, there seems to be, you know, a, an order there. But I don't, you know, people, you know, kind of write Jews off. I don't do that. But but, but quite honestly, I, I think it's a work of the Holy Spirit. So my thought is, well, Jesus, I'm going to follow you as much as I can. Holy Spirit, you're going to unify the church. And it's interesting to see what you're doing. Cause it's, it's, so I don't know, mm -hmm. to be honest. I I think the Jews are very significant, and you know, I I want to see what God will do. You know, I want to see what Jesus does. But um, you know, I'm listening with, with great interest. You know, I want to honor. We have three senior pastors in our midst. So Brett, Gino. Doxology, Hope Chapel, and Trey from Northwest Fellowship. Do either of y'all have anything, anything that strikes you or anything you'd like to, to share? Well, I guess what struck me was the smell of chicken soup. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by that is I think the phrase that, or the idea that grabbed in my heart was the tendency we have to disconnect Christian theology from Israel. And so when we do that, our faith becomes more of a philosophy, uh, a disembodied set of ideas that we try to talk about, and, but that a theology has smells and history and a people and a place and cultures. 
and that when we can reconnect the set of ideas that we think of as Christianity with a historical context and culture and people, place where we came from, <coughs> excuse me, the, the soil that we grew from, as it were, <coughs> excuse me, that, that's a very grounding thing. I feel much more stable. I feel like I'm I'm standing on a mountain as opposed to uh, my faith being sort of a helium balloon, just floating around. I'm going to pass everything to Mike. <coughs> I'd say the more that I study theology and all the places I've studied with, the less concern I had for Israel. And the more that, that I prayed, the more love I've gotten for Israel in the last several years. It's just like there was a disconnect, really. And, and, and it really was. We've always said theology was really the prominent you know, teaching. And I think that as I've prayed, the more I've seen the really Israel's place and a heart for Israel, which I didn't have. I think uh, with Israel us being grafted into the tree that Israel is, I think that makes sense that that's where the unity would be found. I mean, we're, we're just being grafted into them. So, but so my heart didn't change through study; it really changed through praying. Mm -hmm. So I just might do. Okay. Would you ask? Would you ask Steve? He's going to represent the entire Caucasian race. All males. All males, yes. Well, I think that um, when I listen today, I go back to Tuesday, Karen, the bride for the bridegroom, that divisions in the, um, these kind of divisions are a hindrance to the fulfillment of that. Um, and so today, this is something that I wrestle with and, it, and it's something that I've seen as a hindrance to um, coming into this revelation more fully for me for others that I know um, <clears throat> there's this idea and there's been an experience of kind of the, the, the opposite extreme of replacement theology um, of, of, uh, of uh, Israel can do no wrong she's saved no matter what this kind of super Zionist viewpoint that says um, everything she does is going to be okay 
um, justifies her unrighteousness. Um, and, and, and so in essence, there's kind of a dual covenant theology that somehow there's a back way into the kingdom aside from Jesus. And that Israel has kind of a special inroad aside from Jesus that we'll, we'll just figure it out later and Jesus can kind of be put aside. And so, this, and, and, and I've seen this kind of um, overzealous kind of what seems like a, a super Zionist perspective be a hindrance to people saying, well, that's wrong, so I'm just going to push the whole thing away. and groups and we all agree on certain things and that becomes powerful uh, in John 10 Jesus talks about those whom the Father had given to him and that becomes very important when you start seeing words like all and Romans and, uh, but in Romans 9 he, Paul said uh, not all Israel is Israel it's the children of promise. It's those whom the Father has given to Jesus. And that really is pulled out of all people groups, out of all um, subsequent divisions in the church. And I, I think that's a really unifying thought, that it's not our theology. I mean, the Lord has led me where my theology didn't go. And um, it's a move of the spirit, not uh, an intellectual move necessarily. It doesn't have. It's not that it's non-intellectual. It's not spiritual. It's stupid. But um, it's it's something that the Lord is moving that we sense by the Spirit, and so it may run counter to our theology. It may run counter to our preferences, and um, so it doesn't have to be worked out in a hierarchy. Organizationally, uh, Jesus kind of sidestepped the Sanhedrin. He could have gone and wowed them, and uh, he went to the <coughs> those whom the Father had given to him. Uh, and I, I think that's a real possibility today of what's happening in Israel. That it's just a move of the Spirit, and we, we kind of recognize and applaud it, and pray for it, and support it how we can, but. I've been reading about the mystery of Christ and, and Ephesians, and uh, that's so. I think I think what Frank's saying, or several people, sorry, see Justin, is very good because one of the responses to this is not so much a good response is what do you think or what do you, you know, what is the Lord striking your heart with, but maybe a better response is what what do we do. Mm -hmm. And so as we go into the prayer time for the next 30 minutes, I'd like just that to be on our hearts is, okay, what do I do with what I just heard? 